I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then I will get back to where we are in 1 Peter 3, and I've got a lot of things to say this morning. So let's pray, and we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege we have of being a part of the body of Christ here at Lakeside. Lord, we scatter from here, and there's so many things going on, but there is a unity that envelops us when we come back and we start even just sharing a cup of coffee and a, a snack and talking with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, for the camaraderie and the fellowship. And I pray today, Lord, as we are gathered, that we wouldn't just have camaraderie and fellowship, but we would have true worship of you. And I pray particularly for our worship through the teaching and reception of your word. Lord, I pray for me with the challenging things that I know I'm going to be teaching right now, and I pray for the ears of everyone who's going to hear so that we wouldn't be needlessly confused. I also pray for Pastor Steve for the main service as he's teaching powerful truths about the gospel coming to Gentiles like us, Lord. Our, our hope is found in the gospel being opened up not just to the Jewish people but to Gentiles, and so we thank you for that, Lord. We pray for him. Pray that you give him the ability to preach powerfully. And again, you give us hearts to hear the truth. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are stepping into the text that we've been dealing with for a while. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're in a section that goes from verse 18 to verse 22. It's really the end of what we call chapter 3. In our English Bibles. And we are in the midst of a discussion that I've outlined relatively simply. Because I think the reason that this broader section, 18 to 22, is in Scripture is very easy to understand. And I think the meaning overall of why God has it in the Scripture is understandable. But there are some challenges of some nuances. And we're going to be dealing with some of those very real challenges today. As I do every time, I always try and remind you of context. I know many of you are here every week, but there are always some people who come in um, who haven't heard all the last couple of years of teaching. But the paramount focus of 1 Peter is to live holy lives. 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That never changes in terms of thematic focus of the book, but as we've stepped into the latter part of chapter 3, we are really seeing that most of the call to holiness, the overarching um, arena in which this call is made, is in times of persecution, hardship. Believers who were suffering, often believers who were suffering for doing the right thing. And as Peter was introducing this particular section that's continuing on through the end of the book, he in general related that, look, your focus should be to be holy. And normally, if you're doing the right thing, normally, in most circumstances, even in a fallen world, you'll be left alone, but not always. Sometimes... Even if you do everything right from a biblical perspective, you can suffer. Verse 17 of chapter 3 was really the lead-in for the verses that comprise our text. 
Verse 17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. He had made a similar point in chapter 2 with slaves in terms of how they should relate to their masters, but his ultimate point is, look, if you're doing the wrong thing, if you're sinning and you get punished in a secular setting, you just get what you deserve. There's no, there's no pat on the back for that. You can't call yourself a martyr. But if you're doing the right thing, which means you're conforming your life to God's standards, you're being holy, you're keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, if you're doing that and you suffer for it, that's okay. In fact, we're blessed. And I think the big picture of our text from verses 18 to 22 is building off of verse 17. And I believe the big picture is that even when there is legitimate injustice, God can bring good out of injustice. Even if what happens to you complies with verse 17, which means you do the right thing and you suffer for it. That is injustice. Nobody's arguing that's not unjust. But even in those circumstances, God can bring good out of it. And Peter illustrates that by what happened to Jesus. So I've read it many times, but just follow along with me. I'm going to read through verses 18 to 22 again to set the stage for some important discussion this morning. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. I'll actually stop right there. Actually, no, I won't. Just kidding. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I realized I needed to read verse 22. But I broke this whole section down into a, a two-part outline that's relatively simple. It was two proofs that God can bring good out of injustice. The first was that the unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. Again, I can't reteach all of this. All the messages are online. But the first part is the big picture. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. As I talked at that time, that's the greatest injustice ever from a human earthly perspective. It was all part of God's plan, but Jesus wasn't guilty. Even Pontius Pilate knew he wasn't guilty, and yet he was killed anyway. By any standard, even secular people are outraged if somebody was innocent and it's proved they were innocent and they were incarcerated. It was unjust for many earthly sins, but of course that was the means that God used to draw us to himself. That was the way we were brought to God. If Jesus hadn't died, we couldn't be saved. And there's a lot of theology in that that we talked about. It was once for all. It's not a repeated thing. That paid the penalty. It is finished. The just for the unjust. We didn't deserve it. But we're the recipients of the just, holy Jesus dying for the unjust, which is us. And it was clear he had a real human body. He was put to death in the flesh. It was real. It wasn't some illusion. And that led to the second point. 
The second proof that God can bring good out of injustice. First, it's the unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. Second, the resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. The resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. And that really is the crux of what we've been spending weeks covering. It covers several verses to make this point. But as I've said over and over again, because I'm trying to keep the big picture in front of us, knowing that I would come to a day like today, where I'm going to be in the weeds of things, Jesus wins. He didn't stay dead. But made alive in the spirit simply means that as he died in the earthly realm, he certainly was raised from the dead with a real body. We covered that. He was able to interact with his disciples. He was able to say, touch me. He was able to share a meal with them. But by the same token, in this new body, he could do things he couldn't do before. Didn't have the same spatial limitations that we have today. He was raised from the dead, and that gives him the ultimate ability to say, it is finished. The victory's won. He had paid the penalty. This just guarantees everything because he was made alive in the Spirit. That's where verse 22 comes in. Because he was alive in the Spirit, he was able to go into heaven. He's not confined to the earth anymore. He's at the right hand of God. He has won. He has conquered everyone. He's got the ultimate authority and power over everything. So the big picture of this text is really not going to be confusing. Jesus died for sinners. He was raised from the dead. And he's the victor in heaven over everything. But it's how Peter illustrated this second aspect And he illustrated and explained that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, whereas I've indicated to you, even commentators that I respect are all over the map. These aren't heretics. These are orthodox people that if you read it, your head would spin. I know that because my head's been spinning for weeks, including this week. I asked for special prayer from Bruce and, and Steve today because I've been struggling with this. But it's also opened the door for countless people to teach absolute heresy. There are cults that manipulate these verses, that lead people astray, that teach all kinds of aberrant things. So my paramount concern is that you not lose the big picture, and I have probably to a fault emphasized that. Jesus died to bring us to God. That was unjust. But God used injustice for the ultimate victory. Jesus is alive. He reigns. But as we started, now we're in a part, and we covered most of this already, where we're dealing with what happened after Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. It says, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. The last time I taught, I covered this in detail. And I can't reteach it, but I'm just going to give you the big picture. And again, you can go and listen to the details of it. I think what Peter is talking about here is something that occurred after Jesus rose from the dead. He's not talking about something that occurred between the time Jesus died until he rose from the dead. And what Peter is saying is that after Jesus rose from the dead, he went and made a proclamation to certain fallen angels, demons, who had sinned, 
who God centuries, millennia ago had imprisoned in darkness. A place that the scripture in various terms uses different terms, but I think the term abyss, as it's used in several places, is what is being talked about here. Again, he could do amazing things, and part of what Peter's point is now that he's resurrected, he's in the spiritual realm, he can interact with the physical world, but he could also transcend the physical world and go to a place to make a proclamation. And what did he proclaim? I think the best understanding that I can make of all of Scripture, the entirety, is that these demons were placed in darkness. We looked at Scripture, Satan is still free. It's clear, Peter's going to warn that he's prowling around like a lion, looking for those he can devour. There are demons that are free, that are still all over the place. There's doctrines of demons that are still affecting the church today. But I believe there are some demons that have been locked up in darkness such that, unlike the other demons and Satan himself, they were not visual witnesses to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They knew it was going to happen. But they've been bound in darkness, and so Jesus, after he rose from the dead, went and proclaimed to them in their dark prison, by the way, the victory's won. He wasn't preaching the gospel to them. I don't believe this was actual old, the souls of people. This was fallen angels who were not privy to what was going on on the earth. And Jesus went to them in their darkness in his spiritual state and said, I win. Your judgment is complete. Again, I went through a lot of scriptures that explain that. For example, in Luke chapter 8, 27, it's actually 31, but I had read originally 27 to 31, but verse 31, it talks about demons that were interacting with Jesus at that time. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. I think that's where we're talking about. The abyss is a place of torment. Demons know they'll be judged one day, but they don't want to be judged any sooner than is necessary. You recall when I taught, some of the demons said, are you here to torment us before the time? They knew it was coming. They just didn't want it any faster than it had to be. But again, some demons have sinned so badly that God's already placed them bound in prison where they can't do any more damage. They're in darkness. They're isolated from the world, waiting for the ultimate judgment. Jude, it's only one chapter in the book, verse 6 It's describing this, I believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. I think that's who Jesus is making proclamation to. Peter's going to allude to, I believe, the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, we're almost about to wade into what I have to talk about today. So concerned that we not get distracted, I really want to make sure that I'm painting the picture because now we're going to deal with a little bit of a fine point that matters. I think it matters because Scripture says it, but it doesn't affect the big picture. 
which is even if you suffer injustice, don't despair. God can use injustice for his glory. He did it when Jesus died an unjust death for unjust people, but it brought us to God and Jesus is the ultimate victor. So, I believe Peter's talking about sending angels. I believe they're already locked up. And after Jesus was made alive, he was able to travel in the spiritual realm to this abyss, this pit of darkness, and make a proclamation of victory to them, which would do nothing more to confirm their being judged in the future. Maybe that they would have had no way of knowing that what they knew was going to happen had already happened and Jesus just made proclamation. So today we're going to deal with the next and most challenging part of this to me, although all that I talked about made my head spin. But now we're going to say a little bit more detail. Who are these demons and what in the world did they do that was so bad? Here's all that Peter says about them. Who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now again, if everything that I've taught about so far in my studies was a little bit confusing, now things go all kinds of crazy. And yet it's interesting. Everybody, no matter what position they take, agrees on one thing. Whatever disobedience occurred happened at the time of Noah. So, we're going to be talking about the Jude passage potentially, that Second Peter passage, but you might want to at least mark in your Bibles Genesis chapter 6 because that's where it talks about the flood. In fact, in our English Bibles, the last verse of chapter 5 talks about Noah and then we get a picture of why the world was judged. So whatever Peter is talking about, he's referencing and he's focusing us on the time when Noah was alive. On the time right before the worldwide catastrophic event that we refer to as the flood. Some parts of what I just read are not controversial at all. There is a historical reality that Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives were saved from God's judgment. But it's really remarkable to think about that there were some demons that did something that so offended God that they were imprisoned, and yet Satan and many other demons have free reign. And when I say free reign, don't misunderstand me. They're under God's sovereign limitations. The book of Job is a great explanation of that. Satan can't do anything without God's permission. It's not as though Satan is the equal and opposite enemy of God. Satan's a created being. He's under God's ultimate sovereign authority. It's just, on a fallen world, God allows him some latitude. Which is why he can prowl around seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. Which is why his compatriots, who are also fallen angels, who we refer to and the Bible refers to as demons, even still are tormenting the earth. 1 Timothy 4.1 is the verse where it talks about people falling away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. If you don't think doctrines of demons are prevalent today, 
Well, praise the Lord, you haven't seen anything, and so keep your eyes closed. You don't want to see. There are so many false teachers out there with such a wide audience, it would spin your mind. Debbie was just reading something yesterday. We were on a little family day trip, and she was reading something, and it just it was shocking to her, the blasphemy. Not because she hasn't ever heard it before, but sometimes you read something, and you're just caught off guard again at the blasphemy. So you have people under the influence of demons that are trying to deceive the entire church. They're trying to destroy the church. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that the wolves would rise up from within. That's wickedness. And yet they're not imprisoned. It's interesting, there were some demons that were even able to try and kill people. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 18, records an account of this. It says, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him. And the demon came out of him. And the boy was cured at once. Put it in our sanitized world. That demon was trying to get him to commit suicide. Sometimes through fire. Sometimes through water. Such that I don't doubt. And I'm not saying in every case, please don't misunderstand me, but I don't doubt that some of the rampant suicide that occurs around the world and every culture is demonically influenced. Perhaps even because of demonic possession. Yet God hasn't imprisoned those demons. They're destroying His creatures made in the image of God and yet He didn't imprison them. What qualifies as something so evil that it trumps destroying believers, destroying the truth, attacking the bride of Christ, destroying human life? And that's the heart of the controversy. And I have to tell you, this is very difficult. I've come to the conclusion on what I think he's saying, but I'm holding on to that very loosely. Because it's hard So my ultimate point, as I'm about to weigh in and explain it to you, is for you not to lose track of the fact that this isn't central to our faith. I've seen believers get caught up on these little types of controversies and miss everything. And they spend years running down rabbit trails that aren't that important. Scripture's important, all Scripture's inspired by God, but the big picture is clear here. If you're suffering unjustly, don't think that God's abandoned you. Because God used injustice that was falling upon Jesus to redeem humanity and to give him the ultimate victory. So, I can tell you that even though I think I know what Peter's talking about, it's hard for me to understand. It's going to seem very odd to you because I'm going to explain this and I'm going to be emphatic and I'm really going to say that I believe it. And then at the end you're going to be saying, but those things aren't consistent. You're right. So it's hard. So just bear with me. I'm going to tell you what I think is going on here. I'm going to try and present a case for it, but I want you to be very clear this isn't central to our faith. If you understand this, praise the Lord. If it confuses you a little bit, well, you're in good company. I'm still confused. 
Just let it go. What you need to remember is that Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, and He is at the right hand of the Father with complete victory. The illustration in between, we'll try and understand it, but don't get too caught up in it. Now, I've said Genesis 6 to the key to this, but Jude and Second Peter are also keys, the verses that I already read. Jude 6, because there's only one chapter, it's verse 6, and Second Peter. So we're going to jump into this, and it's going to take a little while. But in Genesis chapter 6, I'll actually go back to chapter 5, verse 32, but I'm just going to read what's going on here. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now here are the key terms for what I'm going to present to you. Sons of God. That's a key term from Genesis. And it matters the daughters of men. And the scriptures make it clear the sons of God were attracted to the daughters of men because of their beauty. So much so that they married them and had children with them. And it appears, based on the wickedness that was multiplying when humans were multiplying, that God put a limit. Many very valid teachers say that striving for 120 years just meant that's how much longer before the flood. And how wicked was this time when all this was occurring? Genesis 6, 5, just one of the most profound descriptions of human sin that you could ever imagine. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's hard to get more wicked than that. Now, This is where we get into the deep water controversy because I believe that the key to the demonic prisoners that Peter is referencing in the text that we're studying is tied up in the phrase sons of God in Genesis 6. I'm not sure what all the elders in our church think, but I think there's probably disagreement in us on how this plays out. And I've got to tell you that while I'm in good company with my position that I'm going to take, there's a sense in which even my position is hard to comprehend. This is one of those things that I think I won't fully understand, if ever, until I'm in glory.
So I'm going to tell you what I believe as best I can, and I'm also going to tell you that even there, what I believe is hard to comprehend. I think sons of God is the key, because I think the language used in Genesis, in the original language, isn't referring to human beings. Sons of God, as that language is normally used, that phraseology in Hebrew would normally refer to angels. Heavenly beings. We see that similar Hebrew phraseology in several other Old Testament verses. For example, in Job 1.6. I'm not turning there, I'm just telling you where you could find these. In Job 2.1. In Job 38.7. Very similar phraseology, although it's translated differently in English. Psalm 29.1. Psalm 89.6. I will read... The, the part about Job 1.6, just to give you an illustration. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. That's talking about angels. So right away, the Hebrew language suggests sons of God in Genesis 6 is referring to angels. But that poses a very real problem. Because what Genesis 6 is saying is that these angels were attracted to human women so much so that they married and produced kids. Yet Jesus seems to make it clear that's not what angels do. What do I mean by that? In Matthew 22, verses 28 to 30, Jesus was addressing someone trying to trap him with the Old Testament law. And they were really trying to trap him because there was an Old Testament law that if a brother died and the wife didn't have kids yet, then his brother had to go into the wife. And they remember if you, they made up the story about ultimately seven brothers and none of them. And okay, when they get to heaven, who gets her? And Jesus said, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. That's the question. That's a trap. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Which seems to suggest that angels in heaven aren't concerned with marriage. They're not married. They're not procreating. They're not doing those things. So on the one hand, Jesus seems to suggest that angels don't marry, which would seem to suggest they don't procreate. However many angels were created was however many angels there are. So that seems to be going in a certain direction. But we also know, it's like a game of ping pong, this message. We also know that angels can look exactly like people. They can look exactly like people. In fact, there's an account, I, for time's sake, I probably won't read it, although I don't know what time. No, I got time. I wasn't looking at the clock. In Genesis 18, 1 to 5, now this in I believe this is referring to God himself plus two angels. But it's talking about Abraham. Genesis 18, 1-5. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I've found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. 
and I'll bring a priest of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. We know that this is the pre-incarnate Christ and two angels. But what did Abraham see? He saw humans. And they had real feet that could be washed. And it appears that they were willing to eat the food that was being offered to them. So it would seem that there are times where humans cannot distinguish angels from one another. In fact, that's stated explicitly in Hebrews 13 too. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So it would seem it would be possible for a woman to meet a man who is an angel, which means he's not a man, and not know it. But then again, only humans reproduce humans. The created order is such that God made everything after its kind. It's one of the big lies of evolution is that one kind eventually, given enough time, will turn into another kind, but that's not the way God created things. When you look at the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, you see after their kind, after their kind, for example, I'm just reading an example, verses 21 to 22, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind. And every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. What was happening? Creatures after their kind were multiplying with other creatures of their same kind. That's the created order. For all of the perceived advances of science, humans don't mate with other animals. Even different species of animals don't mate. You don't cross a horse with a cat. The created order is such that normally after its own kind is how things happen. And of course, mankind is distinct among all of God's creation. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God specifically created humans to procreate male and female to fill the earth. So let me recap. Let's take a deep breath. Let me go back and forth. I think the sons of God referenced in Genesis 6 that were attracted to human women were angels. These are the ones that are ultimately in the abyss, although we're not there yet. They're the ones that were disobedient. They're the ones that are preserved in darkness waiting for judgment. And I think Genesis 6 says that the sons of God married human women and had children. And I think that's where Jude is talking. So look at Jude 6 and 7 if you got a second. I'm jumping over there and then I'm also going to go to the, the second Peter text which is in chapter 2. 
But Jude, in describing the sin of these certain types of angels, puts it in the context of another well-known episode of sexual immorality. Jude 6 and 7. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is saying, I believe, that these angels that are in bondage are there because of some type of perverse sexual immorality along the lines of the perverse sexual immorality that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah that resulted in their destruction and these demons are a vision of a different type of eternal punishment. I think that's what Peter says in 2 Peter something very similar. In 2 Peter chapter 2 We'll begin at verse 2 because there's a context for that verse I read you before about angels being in prison. Beginning at verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. Just talking about sinners, people in general. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels... When they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then look at verse 6. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah again. And it continues on. So, I think... Both of these texts are talking about the same prisoners that Jesus proclaimed victory to in our verse. And I think all of these sections go back to Genesis 6. So I think Peter and other texts of Scripture are saying that these sons of God who had a perverse attraction to human women engaged in sin that was so heinous and offensive to God that they were immediately cast into prisons of darkness referred to elsewhere as the abyss and that's where they remain to this day waiting the ultimate judgment but they're already in torment and these are who Jesus went and proclaimed his victory to because they're in darkness and they can't see. Now, if you're not confused yet, get ready because I'm going to confuse you now. As much as I'm absolutely convinced that everything that we're reading is referring to the sons of God in Genesis 6 as angels, I'm also equally convinced that angels as a species cannot mate with humans. Even though angels can appear to be human, they're not human. And I don't believe there can be a person born who is part angel and part human. That would go against the created order. 
I could go into a long discussion here of some ancient Jewish writers, one in particular in a non-biblical book called Enoch, that has a great discussion of these types of theories that goes beyond what Scripture has written, but all those things might have influenced the early readers of this. But I don't believe that it's possible based on all of the created order and my best understanding of Scripture for there to be hybrids between human and angels. And yet, I really believe with all my heart that the sons of God married the daughters of women and had children. Okay, let's pray. Thank you for being... I'm not going to do that to you. How do I think this all occurred? It really is a mystery to me. Because I believe two things that don't seem to go together. And my best explanation of it follows along the lines. Uh, like I said, I'm in good company. It's a view that is espoused by John MacArthur. I don't hold it because he said it. I'm just telling you so that before you throw rocks at me, you at least know there's somebody more important than me that thinks this way. Um... I think that the sons of God in Genesis 6 did what they did through demon possession. My best understanding is that the wickedness on the earth was so severe that some human beings were willingly demon possessed for the allure of greater power and greater ability. Demons can inhabit people. In our modern world, we think that's not true, but I'm convinced from Scripture, you can't ignore the Scriptures, it's possible. I believe it still happens, it's just we don't see it because we're too sophisticated. But it's interesting because a demon inhabiting a human body can cause the human to have superhuman abilities. What do I mean by that? I come back to Scripture. Everything I say, I always come back to Scripture. In Mark chapter 5, it's not the only account, but Mark chapter 5, there's an account in verses 2 to 4 of a demon-possessed man. And Jesus was going to be interacting ultimately with him. But in Mark chapter 5, beginning of verse 2 says, When he, talking about Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he, the man from the tomb, had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. I mean, it's like a, a Marvel superhero movie. Except all evil. What's the point? A human being who is inhabited by a demon exercised superhuman strength. So my best understanding of this difficult, difficult passage is that these demons were wreaking havoc on the earth and one of the reasons that every thought of the man's hearts were evil always continually was because there was rampant demon possession. And it seems... Like this demon possession may have even been generational. 
of people allowing and willingly offering up their own children to be demon-possessed. Now, you can't find all those words. Be very, very careful. I'm just extrapolating here. That's my best understanding of what was going. So when it says they had children with them, I think it was the product of a man and a woman demonically influenced. Could that have altered the DNA? I don't know. What I do think was it ushered in a period of evil that was so vile that God said these demons will never replicate this kind of evil again. And neither were the people because he wiped them all off the earth. And there's a sense in which God did was he started a clean slate right there. Now, were there other demons? Of course there were. Satan was around then. But not all of Satan's armies were engaging in this unique type of perversion of destroying the human race through demon possession in this manner. They would have believed demonic lies. They would have lived with demonic priorities. But they also could very well have had superhuman strength and abilities. Such that when the Bible is talking about these mighty men, they literally were powerful. If a human being can bust through metal and break everything, that's not normal. So you could see why they would say these were mighty men in the sense of power and strength, but it wasn't natural. It was demonic possession. So what I think Peter is saying in the overarching message of us that even if you're treated badly, God can bring good out of injustice is that Jesus' resurrection makes it clear he's the ultimate victor. There's no force that stands in his way. And even those demons that were bound because of their perverse destruction thousands of years ago now know from their point of darkness where they can't see anything, they heard the Savior's voice say, the victory's over. My people are redeemed in a completely non-egotistical way, I win. And your judgment is more deserved than ever. That's the best I can do. I think that makes sense of all of Scripture. It leaves me with questions in my own mind. But that's okay. If I was God, I would have all the answers. I'm not. Now, what's interesting is Peter doesn't stop there. He illustrates the ability and powers of Jesus being made alive in the Spirit by the fact that he could go to a spiritual place of darkness where demons imprison and proclaim victory. But then because he mentioned Noah, because that's the historical reference, he then makes an illustration that when we study it again, bring your thinking caps Because Peter takes what happened to Noah and the rescue that God provided to Noah through the ark and makes a reference via analogy, via illustration to baptism that has likewise caused people to go all over the map. And we don't want to be confused there. So the next time 
we come back to this, we're going to step into verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, pray for me. My brain's already broken. (laughs) But I think we'll be able to do justice to what God says. But what my point to you is, and I saw this in various facets. I saw it a lot because in seminary we read a lot. That's just what we do. I saw people that got so hung up on these obscure things that they made a life devoted to demons. Ostensibly in the service of the church, but they were so focused on that and it's like, how could you live that way? Jesus is who we focus on. So I don't want you to be so enamored by a side road that you run down it. That's not the point. The point is Jesus died once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And he rose from the dead, and he's ascended to heaven. He has the victory, and that guarantees our victory. So, that's where we are. I'll close this in prayer, and then I think we have a few minutes, maybe ten minutes, we could share prayer requests quickly. I think we have enough time to share prayer requests at least. So, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would protect our minds. Lord, these are challenging pictures that you've included in Scripture. Lord, you didn't include them to confuse us or to hide the truth, but our finite minds sometimes can struggle to make sense of everything. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom. pray that you give me wisdom. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be distracted by these illustrations from the big picture, which is that you sent Jesus to save us. And he died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And even now, he's in heaven. And Lord, even the act of me praying is because of all of that. We can come boldly before the throne because of Jesus Christ being made alive in the Spirit. And we thank you. Lord, we ask that you would guard us and protect us and help us to love Jesus even more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.